0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts.
2: For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all of the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR daily brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your favorite podcast app. And we're not stopping there, as we'll soon be announcing additional programming and content partnerships to make membership an absolute must-have. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MAY2022 at checkout to gain access to all of our exclusive benefits for just $5 per month. Thank you for your support.
3: Nice. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, coming to you from New York City. We are joined today by three of the greats, of course, since it's that time of the week. uh, Starting with Dr. Kavita Patel. How are you doing today, Kavita?
0: Good, David. I feel like I'm monitoring four streams of incredibly important news and uh, very excited to talk to our two guests about All four and more of them.
3: What are the four streams?
0: Abortion, uh, Oklahoma, the state legislature passing through truly the strictest uh, language we've seen so far and absolutely guaranteed to be signed by their governor, who takes pride in it. Second stream is something that I'm laughing because it's true, um, monkeypox. I'll put it in like the bucket of communicable diseases, monkeypox and covid the third stream, baby formula shortage in the Defense Production Act, Operation Fly Formula. And then the fourth stream is one that you always educate me on around uh, Ukraine. I'll call it the geopolitical European issues, Ukraine and Russia, et cetera.
3: I read a story this morning in Monkey Box, and I said, I'm going <laughs> in the basement. I'm locking the door. <laughs> I want to have nothing to do with this. We're also joined in Washington, D.C. by noted columnist E.J. Dion. How are you doing today, E.J.?
4: It's great to be with you and Kavita and also your next guest whom I haven't seen in a while. So it's good to join this show just to see him. And I want to say I have nothing to say about monkeypox. I'm leaving (laughs) that to everybody else. I don't want to think about monkeypox. Fortunately, we have with
3: us also the man known as Mr. Monkeypox, <laughs>
4: <laughs>
3: Simon Rosenberg. No, Simon Rosenberg is head of uh, NDN and one of the most thoughtful democratic thinkers in town. And and I think I'm going to need the thinking of all of you. You know, particularly after that <laughs> update. Lead in from Kavita, but mine was going to be sort of just as upbeat because I was sort of following the elections, the primaries, and so forth that took place on Tuesday. And you had, you know, a Republican gubernatorial candidate picked in Pennsylvania who actually participated in the insurrection. You have leading the charge for the Republican nomination in the Senate, Dr. Mehmet Oz, who doesn't live in Pennsylvania. Who, who has a Turkish passport? He won't give up, and who's a quack doctor? I mean, Kavita can speak to this, but he seems to me to be a quack doctor. You had some real right wing nut jobs get elected across the country. Uh, yes, Madison Cawthorn lost, but that really shouldn't come as like the newsworthy shock that it did to all of us, given that he was a creep and a moron. And it seemed pretty grim to me. And then, you know, you've also had this week really weird redistricting in New York, which gives the Republican more seats to take in the House. And then I, you know, got up this morning, and although Kavita didn't mention it in her rundown, there's a lot of people predicting we're about to go into a recession. There's some people who are predicting that the stock market is going to go down and down and down through the summer so that where you could lose 80% of your value in the NASDAQ and 40% of your value in um, the S&P 500 and then throw in the monkey box. And I was like, it's over. It's just over. Everything is over. And so let me start with you, EJ. You're usually pretty upbeat. I am in the basement as we speak. Should I come out ever? Is that ever going to happen?
4: Well, let's look at the bright side. It was really fun to see Donald Trump get out there yesterday. And his candidate, Dr. Oz, last I looked this morning, was ahead by 1,200 votes. And there's a general feeling that David McCormick, the CEO turned fake Trumpist, did he did much better in the mail ballots. And the uh, non-Trump candidate, I mean, he hugged Trump, even though Trump denounced him The non-Trump candidate might pass the Trump candidate in Pennsylvania because of mail ballots. And Donald Trump is going crazy. And I I take a little bit of joy in that, I confess. So it'll be fun to watch that. So what you're saying is, as the world ends, you will be comforted
3: by your pettiness.
4: I'll be comforted by the fact that uh, people who help cause many of these problems are at least having a bad day. You know, that old line I learned from my wife, the definition of Irish Alzheimer's. My wife is Irish-American, which is you forget everything except your grudges. I think that's uh, a worthy kind of idea. But let's just look, I'll just focus on the primaries yesterday and we can move on from that. The victory of Doug Mastriano, a state senator who was almost too right wing for Trump to endorse early on. He only embraced him toward the end of the campaign. As you said, he was. At the events of, of January 6th, he insists he didn't go into the Capitol, but he hired buses. He wanted the state to throw out the elected electors for Biden and replace them with a Trump slate. This guy, he my favorite is he received, I think, the Sword of David, some ceremonial uh, award from some QAnon group. I mean, this guy is the fringe of the fringe. And he won two to one over his nearest opponent in the Pennsylvania primary. And so my column, the headline on my column was that Trumpism has metastasized. And you're really seeing the results of what he's done over the last two years, the attack on democracy, the mainstreaming of truly dreadful extremist ideas in the Republican Party. And at least I think, and then, you know, Ted Budd, uh, Trump's guy in North Carolina in the Senate race won uh, very easily. And by the way, Madison Cawthorn lost by a couple of points, which is really remarkable. You know, I, he had, there are more scandals there than I can remember with him. And so I really think that the lesson of Tuesday, given what's happening inside the Republican Party, is that Democrats really have to be willing put a lot of energy into making the defense of democracy and the the battle against right-wing extremism central to the campaign in the fall. Yes, there's no escaping economic issues, especially if the market goes the way you say the market goes. Some are saying the market will go. And yes, inflation is inflation. And Lord knows, Kavita will tell us what in the world is going to happen to the non-monkey virus that we're worried about. But I think those issues will be there one way or the other. It's going to have to take an affirmative effort. And I think it's worth it. And I think it's more than worth it. I think it's essential to talk about extremism and the threat to democracy as we go into the fall. I'm feeling a little better. Turn to Simon. Simon
3: gets my nomination, as I've said here before, as the person, one of the people I know in Washington who best makes the case for the Democrats so you can make me feel better,
1: right, Simon? (laughs) Yeah, let me try. Listen, I think the election is going to come down to two components. You know, what EJ talked about, which is can Democrats define the Republicans as being out of the mainstream, radical, extreme, whatever the language is, MAGA, right? Ultra MAGA is the new language that's being used. But we also have to make a better case for ourselves about how, you know, we've been able to successfully navigate the country through extraordinary challenges like COVID and now Ukraine and, What's happening with Russia, that we're going to have food shortages and rising energy prices. I mean, this is going to be a tumultuous time ahead of us. I think it's a real opportunity for the Joe Biden that we elected to reemerge and to show himself as a leader of the world rallying against these global challenges. Inflation and food prices and food shortages now are going to be defining global challenges. And he's got an opportunity, I think, in the coming weeks at the on his Asia trip on his G7, where the G7's in June, the Summit of the Americas is in early June, to really assert himself again as the, the leader of the free world, the Joe Biden, the President of the United States, not the Governor of the United States, but the President of the United States, you know, navigating and pushing this country through difficult times. And I, I think he's going to have a leadership reboot opportunity in the coming months that are going to be very critical for the Democratic chances this summer and fall, because I think what's really holding him down is this perception that there's chaos that, and he's not really in control. It's a strong leader, weak leader thing, as we talk about in polling, right? And I think the administration's got to work, not just on the issue set and governing well, but also presenting him as a strong leader, navigating the country successfully through these big challenges. If we can do that, I think it's going to be a very competitive election. I do think the Republicans you know, have, are going to They have a low ceiling. I think they've, you know, any chance of them running away with this midterm, I think, is gone. And certainly you've seen the Democratic Party lean very, very heavily into what E.J. was saying in the last couple of weeks and in a unified voice. They're using the similar language. It's a, you know, Schumer, the House Democrats, the president are all using the same MAGA, ultra MAGA language. We know from polling that I've seen, and it's common sense, that voters are aware of how the Republican Party's changed. This is not something that we have to put into their minds. And we also know that because record numbers of people voted against MAGA in 2018 and 2020. I mean, the Republicans do have a little bit of a math problem here because there's a lot, there's majorities, overwhelming majorities voted against MAGA twice already. And they're going to either have to have those people stay home because I don't know that many of them will switch over to being Republicans, right? And so I still think this is going to be a competitive election. I think we've got the tools to make it competitive whether we do or not, is going to be part of the drama in the coming months. Kavita, I know you well
3: enough at this point. Although I have to admit, you know, I don't normally admit this kind of thing, but Kavita and I, you know, we're like COVID pals. Like we talk to each other every week. We do podcasts together every week. I've never actually met Kavita. I've never actually been in the same room. we spend all this time to. because
0: you're time. in all the important rooms, David. Yeah, um, yeah I, we I spend all I'm this time.
3: I spend more time with Kavita than any relative I've got, and yet it's always virtual. So, Kavita, as you listen to what we're saying here, and as you've watched the news this week, what do you think?
0: I told you what I'm following, but I actually think both EJ and and Simon have had very compelling articles, and particularly Simon in your blog. I was struck by what I thought was a very kind of nice summary this week around how much progress the Democratic Party has made with Latino communities, Hispanic voters. And I kind of had that in frame of mind with some of your and EJ's previous articles and commentary on how much progress we've made just with the Biden administration, jobs, economic opportunity, growth, kind of during improvement of the pandemic response, et cetera but I can't help but then come back to a little bit of what I mentioned. You've got you know, moms crying on TV about not being able to get their baby's formula, gas prices as Americans are trying to go out and enjoy kind of quote unquote, a normal summer. And then David did point to this recession. I'm always a bit skeptical when there's this like, oh, we have a precursor to the recession given just given the other variables around that. But I would love to hear from both of you because, Simon, everything you've written is absolutely true. We have data. Things have improved. We have hard data. Yet here we are with perceptions of Joe Biden as being a failure, you know, on Twitter. And not even just kind of the hard, far right. It's been very disturbing to me to see even kind of moderates responding with where has Biden been on X, Y and Z issues. So put that maybe into context, both EJ and Simon for me, because I, I am struggling because i I I agree. We've made progress with Latino voters. We've made progress here. And then I kind of look at what's unfolding, not even on media, just regular people talking. And it doesn't feel like that progress is appreciated. Or maybe we're all deceiving ourselves to say that there's progress and the rest of the country outside of D.C. and my bubble doesn't feel it.
4: Could I come in on that? Because I wanted to say something in response to what Simon was talking about as well. Well, The reason I was looking down on my phone is I wanted to find this famous quote from Napoleon that Karl Rove is extremely fond of, Karl Rove, the advisor to President Bush. Napoleon said the whole art of war consists in a well-reasoned and extremely circumspect defensive, followed by a rapid and audacious attack. And the way I see the economic issues in this election mm-hmm. is that Democrats are going to need a well-reasoned and extremely circumspect defensive, because no matter how much of a case you make that, yeah, Biden, know, unemployment is low. The Rescue Act helped an enormous number of people. There's a lot to be said for this record. But in the midterm, people tend to say, what's happening to me right now or "What what was happening to me? a couple of months before the election, and there was a lot of discontent there. And so I think on those issues, to COVID to some degree, because it was supposed to go away and came back, and obviously inflation, and now this mess in the stock market, there's gonna be some defensive. And so I think Democrats need to make their case, but then move on to these other questions. Because I think if this is a normal election, on the basis of economic issues and how people feel, Democrats will probably lose. One of the great slogans ever was the Republicans' 1946 midterm slogan. David and I covered those elections uh, together. No, we didn't. And you know, the slogan was, had enough, vote Republican. And that's the kind of campaign Republicans want to put all these Trumpists in the closet, just say, had enough, vote for us. And I think that's where the issues of extremism and democracy come in. And just to underscore uh, Simon's insistence that it ain't over yet, there was a very interesting poll that came out this morning from NPR, the NewsHour in Marist, which on the generic question, or would you vote Republican or Democratic in your congressional district? The Democrats are actually ahead 47, 42 on that generic. The poll found. The Democratic voters, uh, not surprisingly, far more than Republican voters, were being energized by the possi- energized negatively, obviously out of anger, but drawn into the electorate by the possibility. We'll see if it's a reality of the Alito decision throwing out Roe v. Wade. What's also struck me, and I'm very curious about what what Simon thinks about this, looking at these generic polls over the last several months. There are such stark contrasts poll to poll. There's a kind of chunk of polls that show Democrats not doing so badly. They probably need even more than five points to hold the House, but that's a start if you're ahead rather than behind. And then other polls show them losing rather badly. I'm curious with all the survey work Simon does, what yeah. he's sense he's making this number one. And number two, if you don't mind my asking, Simon, he's also done more polling than most people. On the Latino vote over a long period of time, and he's really warned Democrats for a long time how important it is that they pay attention to the Latino vote. So I'd love to hear you out on these two, Simon, <laughs> if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, sure. I, I, there's a lot there, but let me let me try to bang through it. Yeah, the congressional generic, which is the question, is a very simple question, which is, are you going to vote Democrat or Republican for Congress this year? Is all over the place, and part of the reason why I think that is is that. In the last midterm we had an historic turnout and part of part of the the variance can come from the projection of a pollster yes. who they think is going to vote. Yes. And midterms are very hard, they're much harder to gauge who's going to vote, right? Cuz there's just more episodic voters that are not really sure if they're going to vote. And so really projecting the actual electorate is much harder in midterm elections, which is why you're seeing the variance. It's also harder because so many people voted In the last two elections, we have a large number of new and episodic voters in the electorate. And and I think that one of the the things that, and this gets to EJ, why I don't think this is over. I think the other thing that's happened in recent years that people don't realize is that our technology around get out the vote has changed, has, has innovated and improved dramatically. We now have not only far more money in our campaigns, which always increases turnout when you touch more people, they turn out but also this distributed phone technology where you can be sitting in California and making calls, GOTV calls into swing districts in the Midwest. We couldn't do that before. And so it means that we use the money of Democrats all across the country to fund our campaigns. We can now actually use the labor of three or 4 million Democrats to help increase turnout. And I think that the chance of there being a significant drop-off is mitigated because of that. And, and so It's why I don't think, you know, this project. I've always said I think this Democratic turnout is going to be much higher than people anticipated. And remember, since Trump won the nomination, the average margin for Democrats in these last three elections has been five points, which is a lot. They have a lot to overcome here. I mean, these were not close elections, right? In the last two elections, four and a half points, eight and a half points. So Republicans really have to change the electorate by four or five points, six points. That's a lot. And they frankly haven't earned that. They haven't created a story, a narrative that I think earns their support of that many new people. So I I just continue to be optimistic. I was at an event last night with a lot of members of Congress, and they were optimistic that they have candidates who can withstand and survive this election. We're already seeing in the Senate. We don't have a single Senate candidate who's trailing definitively in any polling right now, none of our incumbent senators. And if there were polls out showing our House frontliners in danger, the Republicans would have shared those, and they don't have them because they don't exist. And so I think this is going to be, my own view is that this is going to be a very competitive election, and I'm, I remain optimistic about it. On the Latino front, I'll just say that we've got work to do here. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's good news, bad news. And as, as Kavita said, is the good news is that a slightly smaller piece of a much bigger pie still means more pie, right? And so, what happened in 2020 is that we had a little bit less, we lost a little bit of ground, but the Hispanic turnout jumped by almost a third from 2016 to 2020. So, that gain actually, even though we lost a little bit, it allowed us to win Arizona. We've picked up two Senate seats in Arizona. And remember, EJ, when you and I first started talking about this Hispanic thing in 2002, 2004, in 2004 election, we didn't win any Electoral College votes in the four Southwestern states. We only had two of eight Senate seats, and we only had six of 21 House seats. Today, because of our Hispanic project in the Democratic Party, we won all four of those states in the Electoral College for the first time in modern era politics. We now control all eight Senate seats. We picked up six Senate seats, and we've gained eight House seats. So the Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate come from the gains we've had with Hispanics over the last 20 years. And the Electoral College piece, those four states, is critical to the current majority that we have. So the Hispanic work has been central to the current rise and majority of the Democratic Party, which is why we have to preserve it and also expand, reclaim lost ground in Florida and make gains in Texas. We can do this because we've done it before, but we've got to really put more energy, I think, as a family into this, because it's so central now to who we are and where our majorities come from. That we've got to make it a much bigger priority, I think, than we have.
3: Kavita, I'd like to talk about specific drivers that we're seeing emerging that may get bigger or smaller as we get closer to the election, but I want to focus on the ones that that I think will get bigger. You mentioned the Oklahoma abortion law. One thing that strikes me, well, first of all, we don't have an abortion ruling yet. That's gonna come in June. So there's gonna be a whole bunch of news around that and probably significant reaction to that. But if Republican legislatures continue as they are doing, they're going to spend the next four to five months passing terrible laws, reminding people on a monthly basis that they are taking away a fundamental right of women and a fundamental choice of families that 70% of Americans believe should be maintained. So do you think, what is your sense? Do you think that is going to drive turnout? Do you think it is going to help shape the outcome?
0: I do. I mean, I think that we're already seeing certainly at least some of the leading organizations, EMILY's List, NARAL, Planned Parenthood, obviously, and some others that are now getting stood up in light of what's expected with Roe v. Wade and and kind of its accompanying decisions have been receiving record amounts of dollars, as well as kind of efforts to put into state legislature, both you know candidates who are very clearly pro-choice, pro-abortion, pro-reproductive justice, and then trying to also then create kind of counter campaigns for people who are, I mean, let's just put it bluntly, like anti-healthcare rights. That's what they are when they're denying these, these rights to, to people. So I do think it'll drive turnout. I think the question is Simon kind of made me think about, you know, where the races have these wide margins. But then we look at Lauren Underwood in, in Illinois, and, and she's facing a close race. A Democrat, she was uh, one of the ones that flipped it in two, two Congresses ago. She's incredible kind of backstory nurse, African-American woman, but shouldn't feel to me like her race is this close with somebody who also has concerning views on reproductive justice. But so, so that's a good example where I actually think that kind of turnout and her ability to speak to these issues could make a difference, both in fundraising and turnout as well, because it feels like the correlation is high with the amount of money that you're able to put into these campaigns. But I, to your point, David, will that result in a net net in places that you know we handicap to be certainly democratic, to see something that would flip or be, let's talk about Pennsylvania. Everybody, Josh Shapiro has been pretty much ordained in a way, not just at the Democratic primary, obviously, but, you know, the likely candidate, but I'm not so sure. And maybe that's just because I've, I've learned so much from 2016 and also just our strength of our data. I don't know if we can be as certain about that. So in that instance, could there be a turnout that women or just people who are wiser to reproductive justice Including uh, demographics that had been underrepresented, but are disproportionately affected by the lack of choice. So these are usually women in color, women who are Medicaid recipients. It's not just certain socioeconomic statuses that uh, we know have will be denied care. Can that turn it out? I hope so. I, I think that that's where it'll also depend on where some of these other factors are in our, you know the economic, indices that we have, if you're a parent who's dealing with all the other kind of crises of being able to afford X, Y and Z, the thought about your reproductive justice might rank a little bit lower in that kind of time frame. And that's why I think as a Democratic Party, we have to make it very clear that this isn't just about kind of the here and now we're we're creating a legacy for decades that will affect their children. I'm not so sure that message has gotten out yet, but that's because many of us, including myself, are trying to mobilize now and get the message articulated much more clearly. So net, net, I do think it'll help push tailwinds for voting, but will it make the difference in some of those close races? I'm not sure.
4: Three reasons why an Alito-style decision will be important and helpful to Democrats. Number one, For years and years, the voters mobilized around the abortion issue tended to be anti-abortion, the pro-life side, Mm -hmm. rather than pro-choice voters, because they thought Roe was going to protect them. I think this flips that entirely. Second, the Democrats face two challenges. One is to turn out younger voters who are very turned off right now. I think the biggest problem for the Democrats is to get young people back into the electorate as they were in 2020 and to a remarkable Degree in 2018. I think this issue affects them. And the third is a lot of these races are going to be decided by suburban moderates. And suburban moderates are much more likely to be pro choice than pro life or anti abortion. And that, I think, could make a real difference in some of the most important house races, some of the most competitive, which is why I think John Roberts is telling Kavanaugh, please don't go all the way on this. We don't want to see the backlash that we're going to see if Alito's decision is the one the court puts out. Well, so
3: I want to come up with, uh, come back to a couple of other big drivers that I see coming. But first, this is the moment in the podcast when we take a break and we say goodbye to people who are joining from the general public and we encourage them to become members because if you're a member, you could listen to the rest of the podcast. So go become a member, go to the DSRnetwork.com, become a member. The past week's been, I think, the biggest membership week we've ever had. That's excellent, but let's try to make this one bigger. I think people are increasingly realizing the value of listening to perspectives like this is enormous. So become a member if you haven't, and then come back and join us for the rest. For the rest of you, all you have to do is wait around for one moment